0: The bad news for all you guys is that brief is not in my vocabulary. Secondly, I asked Gary if I could go first. That way I could drink the water first before the other two speakers. Thirdly, let's read the text, an obscure text. In fact, Gary's response to me, really? You're going to do that miracle? It was on his list. And yet I felt compelled to preach about it. Luke 22, verses 47 through 51. Actually, let's go to 53. While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying me? Are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what he was going to happen, they said to the Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, And elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. When Jesus said, not one jot or one tittle shall pass away until all is fulfilled, I remember this text is not too obscure. When he says the word of God cannot be broken this text this miracle is not too obscure for us to pass by when he says to us that he is the bread of life and every man lives by that very bread in the word of god this text this one little phrase that he healed the high priest's slave is not too obscure the hour had come that the son of man must be betrayed tried found guilty and hung unjustly upon the cross By Jesus' own words, these things must happen this way to fulfill the Scriptures. The disciples, I believe, have finally grasped what Jesus meant here, and they are fearful. Surely, their leaving of Christ all alone even communicates that even more. Their sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane was not solely because their eyes were heavy, as the Scripture says, but it's because their hearts were filled with great sorrow. And so they understood the ramifications of the fulfillment of his death about to come. None of the disciples could have planned for this, could they have? None of them at all. Their spirits were willing, but their flesh was weak. They were like pawns in a chess match of good versus evil. I cannot help escape the the metaphorical aspect of a chess game of black on one side and white on the other. Indeed, in this chess match, the scriptures are being fulfilled and evil will lose. Even to the degree that the Lord promised to fulfill the scriptures by protecting them at this very moment when they came to take Jesus away to be tried. Let them go their own way, he says regarding the disciples, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom thou hast given me. I lost not one. Is he not the great shepherd of John 10? Oh, the power of the sovereignty of God and his providence to fulfill all things within the venue of his holy word. That which he has planned, he will fulfill, Isaiah said, and this he is doing. Acts four twenty seven and 28 says, They were gathered together against the holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. I love that word, predestined. It says that God predetermined these events, even summoning from the east a bird of prey, a man to fulfill his purpose. This is what Isaiah said concerning the power of God to do this. Jesus did not need Peter to carry a sword to fulfill the Scriptures, but it was part of the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And even Jesus even says, could I not call down twelve legions of angels instead of needing a sword? Peter asks, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And even before Jesus says anything, he strikes. And he strikes the high priest slave named Malchus in another text. Put your sword back, Jesus says, for all those who take up the sword will die by the sword. Jesus says, and this is critical, stop! No more of this. Stop! What is he saying stop too? I think so many things. Let me give you a little hint. Stop the madness Of the hatred of the Jews towards their Messiah. It's madness. Stop the madness of bringing three to six hundred soldiers of a Roman cohort to arrest one man. Stop the madness of accusing an innocent man who only did good and healed and cared. Stop the madness of eleven disciples' unfaithfulness. Stop the madness. And finally, stop the madness that Satan thinks that he can still overcome at this moment of this dark hour, even though the Lord says, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. Stop the madness. We shouldn't be surprised. Solomon says, The heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and then they go to the dead. Stop the madness, the madness of human sin. And all those who are here, party to it. But how does Jesus respond? Where there is madness, there is life and grace. And what he does is characteristic of Christ, but uncharacteristic of man. He heals a slave in the midst of all of the turmoil. What does this moment of grace mean by healing the slave's ear? Surely the leaders and the soldiers and the disciples didn't recognize him as God, able to literally take the very person he created and to reattach an ear that probably was cut all off. Only God, by the finger of God, can do that. If they recognized that, where the Roman soldiers fell back, if they recognized him, they would have fell forward in worship. Worship but they did not. How could they miss Christ's response to this madness, grace, in the midst of it? Let me give you four texts that come from the Sermon on the Mount that gives us an indication that Jesus is consistent with His Holy Word. We would not expect anything less than Jesus speaking truth and discipling his disciples, teaching them, and following his own word as he goes through the very many of the same experiences of suffering. Matthew five thirty-eight and 39. Resist not him that is evil, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus has turned the cheek to overcome evil with good. L- let me repeat that. He's overturning evil with good. By doing so, He teaches the disciples the true gospel response to evil. It's standing right before Him. The pressure is on. What does He do? He heals. By doing so also, He does another thing. He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He exposes their sin. He brings shame. He brings guilt. John 16.22 said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have their sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. I've exposed it. How has he exposed it? By grace. You see, darkness is only seen when it is exposed to the light. That's why he said you must become children of light. That you no longer walk as children of darkness. The gospel truly is forgiveness in the presence of evil. We must side on the white side of the chessboard, should we not? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, The cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Or do you have to have your way? Do you need revenge to take place before the throne room of Christ does it for you? In the world, God has established laws and ethics and prisons are a testimony of God's concern about justice. But what is going on here is not physical. It is spiritual and defeating evil spiritually. Jesus' response to evil here is spiritual. It is a divine grace and love proving to the world that his mission, his passion, his suffering will overcome evil. Secondly, in Matthew 5:41, whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus is about to be trampled underfoot by the nations, fulfilling scripture. And yet every step he takes closer to Calvary is a victory over sin, Satan, the world, and evil. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Look at the grace in the midst of evil he brings in the presence of those who still are in darkness. Guilt and shame and showing what grace looks like. And light shining brighter than any darkness could ever do. Number three, Matthew 5.40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Stripped and shamed, by his, of his holy dignity. They gambled for the Son of Man's cloak. Evil showed its merciless, merciless hatred at our beloved Savior, even stripping him in public. And yet he did not return insult for insult, did he not? In holy humility he submitted himself to the Father's will as a lamb led to the slaughter, a sheep who was silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Finally, Matthew five forty-two: Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. We have to recognize that this teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is in the context of evil men. Evil men that strike you. Evil men that want to take from you evil men that are asking of you and you and I are not to have a mindset of revenge but only love and compassion and grace can expose evil for what it is and defeat it and this is what Jesus did do you ever wonder why he said so few measured words on Calvary's cross it was the love that overcame evil and the Calvary was, you could say, the crescendo of God's evil condemning work. Therefore, in the Garden of Gethsemane, these evil men are demanding everything of Christ. Demanding everything. Give us your coat. Walk that mile with us. Strip and be ashamed. And yet he heals a servant to show grace one last time. Well except for the thief on the cross, is at another moment of grace. Give it all away, Christian, even your life for God. God has reserved for him an eternal dwelling and he has for you too. Give it all away. There's nothing more important than manifesting the grace of God in this world and defeating evil by doing it. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, brothers and sisters. The Sermon on the Mount is the magnum opus of a Christ-like character. He's living it out when they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's living it out as he walked to Jerusalem, going that extra mile as the Son of Man. He's living it out when he's on the cross, saying those measured words to show the Holy Lamb of God silent and defeating evil for you and I.
1: Good morning, everyone. This second miracle of Jesus that we're going to consider this morning is actually the so-called first miracle of Jesus, done at Cana in Galilee at the wedding, where he changed water into wine. It's found in John 2, um, interestingly, but we'll not go off on that rabbit trail. It's only in the Gospel of John, not the other Gospels, uh, but it's in John 2, verses 1 through 11. I will read that. You can follow along. I believe it's behind me. This last verse, which I'm going to read again, is the verse that's going to put this account in context for us. And for us to fully understand this account, we need to know what is said in verse 11. It reads like this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. For us, the true meaning of this account is not actually found at the factual level, but it is below that at the symbolic level. We're told that Jesus' miracle at Cana was a sign, a first sign, and this sign manifested his glory, and because of that, there were some who believed. And so the question facing us this morning is, is this sign, is this account, something that will help us to believe in him better too, and certainly I hope so. We in 2018 have a distinct advantage over those disciples and the people who were there. Though they actually walk with Jesus in real time, they did not know all the history that we now know. It is recorded for us in the Bible and other history sources. We are on this side of the cross, and we can look back on all of the events chronologically and understand what took place a whole lot better than the disciples did at the time. For the disciples walking with Jesus, it was a progressive reveal. They didn't have all the puzzle pieces, and even for the puzzle pieces that they did have, it wasn't all that clear. Consider Thomas, who after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, actually even wanted to put his hands in the scars So that he could believe Jesus better. But we have a much better advantage than those people. So how can we benefit now with that advantage to believe Jesus better? The account of this miracle will help us do that. So from our good vantage point, I'd like to take a look at this account more closely. From the simple to the complex, it will teach us several things. First of all, at the simple level, duh, it happened. On the third day, there was a wedding. Jesus and his mother and disciples went. They ran out of wine. He made wine. Factually, that's what took place. So the account does teach us history. But let's scratch deeper. At that time, Jesus turned the water into wine. That was a miracle. It wasn't that he did it by progressively fermenting the liquid. He did it in an instant. And in that time, he proved, that he was much more than man. He is divine. He proved that he is God incarnate, God himself. And we learn that as we go a little bit deeper. But let's go deeper yet. And that's where I'd like to make the point this morning. He did this as a sign. And Barry in Sunday School this morning even referred to that. He did this as a sign. It wasn't just an account. And this sign teaches us who Christ is and what he actually came to do. It teaches us that Jesus came to die on the cross for us so that we, like John the Baptist, might proudly and joyfully proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So that's kind of where I'm headed this morning. Are you confident that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who shed his blood to pay for your sins? If you are, rejoice. But if you are not confident that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who went to the cross to shed his blood to pay for your sins, then this is a time this morning for deep introspection and inquiry. You need Jesus as your Savior. And it may well be that this morning, by God's grace, you might settle that issue for eternity's sake. So what's going on at the symbolic level? How can we dig deeper into this passage and know it better so that we might believe God better? There's some interesting words and phrases that we encounter. Three of them I'd like to touch on with you. The first one is wine. It wasn't milk or coffee or tea or some other concoction. It was wine. And though I'm not a wine drinker and clearly not a wine connoisseur, I do know that There's some effort to making wine. You crush the grapes, you take that juice, and then you have to allow it to ferment, and that happens over quite some long time. It doesn't happen in an instant. This was a miracle. We need to recognize that this event was of God and not of man. Jesus signals us with this sign that this big thing, this sign points to something that is not of man, but is of God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man will boast. So what is coming, and what this sign portends to show us, to show them back then, to show us now, is that this is of God, not of man. I would tell you... Um, just in the clarification of this reflection that the, the scripture doesn't tell us if it was red wine or white wine. However, I believe it was red and I believe it fits in with the text as I'll further amplify it. And there was red wine at the time. Solomon wrote in Proverbs twenty-three thirty-one. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. They had red wine. And so, for my purposes, the clarification purposes of this account, we're going to deal with it as red. Essentially then, Christ's miracle was that he took clear water that was the poorest, the least desirable and in an instant, he changed it into red liquid. That was the choicest. That was the best. That was the best saved for last. And I'll share further, that was ample and sufficient. The second interesting phrase that would be a clue for us to determine what this sign is all about is Christ's words, my hour. After his mother told him, hey, they've run out of wine, We record and see at, uh, it was recorded and we see at verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Interesting how many times we sort of read and fly over verses in Scripture, and I know I've flown over that one many times. But in having to prepare, it kind of puts speed bumps in one's thinking, and And you look at that and go, that's kind of weird. I mean, you can't ascribe to Christ being disrespectful, like, come on, Mom, what the heck? What are you asking me for? It's not my problem. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying, what does this have to do with me? There's more than that. It's He's announcing that, hmm, interesting point, we're here. We can make some information known to those around us and believers 2100 years later that his hour had not yet come and that there was this hour coming. Jesus' reference to his place in time, his, his place in history, is significant. He is God. He's omniscient. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows everything. He spoke these words and he knew what was coming. In fact, he knew what the cross that the cross was coming and the cross is the focal point of all history. The Old Testament prophetically leaned and looked forward to it. The Gospels talk about the birth, life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then the Epistles, and even us today, look back on that momentous event. It is the pinnacle of all history, Christ on the cross. Effectively, we could say that all history is his story. Jesus knew his story. He knew the agony and the suffering that was ahead, but it wasn't yet his time. The time was coming, though. Paul wrote to the Galatians at 4.4, In the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that they might receive the adoption as sons. And Paul further wrote to the Ephesians after the fact in 1.7, in, uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And Paul further wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus was omniscient. He knew his hour was coming. As he approached the hour, he reflected that it was coming. Uh, we pick him up at this point in John 2. He was in Galilee, Then he goes to Jerusalem in chapter 2. Later on, he goes to the Judean countryside in chapter 3. He tries to return to Galilee through Samaria in chapter 4 and passes through Sychar with the woman at the well. He goes back to Galilee, then to Jerusalem in chapter 5. He goes to the seashore of Galilee in chapter 6, feeds the 5,000, walks on the water, goes to Capernaum and preaches in the temple. And now we see him back. Going back to Galilee in, in chapter seven one, which reads, "After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Well, the fact was, he was committed. He, committ- he was performing signs which were, which were attracting the people and getting under the skin of the, of the Jewish leaders. So they were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. He's aware of it. Well, he sends his disciples to the feast, but privately later he does go. And he does some signs, and he does some teaching, and of course he gets under the skin of the Jews who were there. So we, we pick up at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. So Christ knew the hour was coming, and as he was performing signs in this progressive reveal to the people... He was leading up to something very special. He, knew, but, but when he knew that his earthly ministry was winding down and that he was getting to the cross, his comments about the time could change, and you could pick up on that. When he, uh, before entering Jerusalem for the Last Supper, he told his disciples, Matthew twenty six eighteen, "Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says." My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So he goes to the upper room and he has the last supper and he meets with his disciples and says a lot of things. And further, at the end, he prays to the Father, recorded in John 17, his his long priestly prayer. And he begins at 17:1 when Jesus, or he begins at 17:1 when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So the time in the upper room ends and they cross the Kidron Valley and they go to the garden of Gethsemane to spend special final time with his disciples. And while in the the garden, he leaves them the first time they fall asleep. He comes back, he leaves them the second time they fall asleep. They're not doing it very well. And then the third time at Matthew twenty six forty four. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came with the soldiers and they took him away. So the clock is ticking, the hour is here. Christ knew his hour was coming, but at the wedding feast back in Cana, he was giving a hint, a clue, a signal that there was coming a big event. It wasn't now, but it was coming. And we know that that big event was the cross where he shed his blood for us. The third clue that I believe wraps up the symbolic understanding of this passage is found in verse 6, where it reads, Now there were six stone water jugs there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I would tell you that we do not know directly from from the passage that the wedding was taking place in a temple or a religious place or a religious person's house. But I would suggest that it's a fair assumption that we conclude as such because there were these six jars for the rites of purification. Those were the the types of things that would be in uh, a place where the priests and the people could cleanse themselves. These are not ordinary water containers. They were containers specifically used for Jewish ceremonies. They were jugs that contained water that the people would use the priests and the celebrants to cleanse themselves and as it turned out from the outside in and as it turned out for only a short period of time. Christ directed the servants at the wedding to fill these jugs and scripture tells us they filled them to the brim. Interesting. Again, speed bumps in one's reading. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. So we're dealing with 120 to 180 gallons of liquid. I was curious, some of you may already know, how much a gallon of water weighs. 8.34 pounds. So we're dealing with 1,000 to 1,500 pounds of liquid. Or, putting it another way, a half ton to three quarters of a ton of liquid. This is an enormous amount of water. Water. It's no small miracle that Christ changed this water and what we need to take from it is the starting point. In the Jewish way of doing things, they believed and presumed that they needed sufficient, significant amount of water to cleanse themselves before they could go before a holy God. But we know it was only for a short period of time. And a small cleansing. And it cleansed them from the outside, but it didn't cleanse them from the inside. And Christ is looking at this and giving us a sign and referencing to us that in the fullness of time, when the right time comes, he would introduce red liquid that would be the choicest, the best, the best for last. And it was a large amount, clearly sufficient and ample. What happened when Jesus' hour came? He was crucified on the cross. And how was the payment made for our sins when He was crucified? It was by the shedding of blood, the red liquid that was the choicest, the best, the best that was saved for last. Jesus was proclaimed by John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. The blood of this sacrificial lamb is special. It wasn't contaminated by sin. Jesus lived a sinless life. It was he who could die for us in a substitutionary way. When he shed blood, he was not shedding blood for himself. This blood was special. Judas Iscariot, in his guilt after betraying Christ and turning back the 30 pieces of silver to the the Jewish leaders, remorsefully bemoaned and said, I have sinned. For I have betrayed innocent blood. But you know what? It was more than just innocent blood. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was forgiving blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. It was redeeming blood. Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It was justifying blood, and as Pat preached last week, it was the propitiation. It took away the wrath of God. First Peter one eighteen says, "Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." It was ransoming blood. And finally, First John one seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. It was cleansing blood. This red liquid that Christ portended to come at the wedding in Cana in Galilee was special and it saves us. It was a sign from Christ to the people there and candidly, from him to us 2,100 years later, that something great was coming soon. It's sign to us in 2018 is just as meaningful as it was to the people at the wedding. And hearken back to verse 11. He did the miracle. It was the first of his signs. It manifested his glory, and the people believed. Jesus' blood... Um, was the choicest, the best, and the most special. And so, as I had indicated to you previously where I was heading, I want to finish there. This consideration of Christ's blood, the sign from the wedding, is a personal thing for each one of us. And the question has to be asked, am I confident that Jesus is the Lamb of God who shed blood for me to take away my sins. If you're confident, rejoice. But if you are not confident that Jesus Christ is your Lamb who shed His blood for you, then take seriously introspection this morning. And what I would offer to you is, I will be upfront. If you are not clear about your salvation, if you are not clear that this blood shed for you 2,100 years ago applies to you, please come up and let's talk and let's settle this. Because the sign that Jesus gave back at the the wedding in Canaan, Galilee is a sign to you as well.
2: Thank you, Alan. So some... uh... Thoughts of application for us as we look at this last miracle, the calming of the storm or the calming of the great sea. That's really where I want us to go. So, you know, if you don't take anything more from what I am about to say over these next few minutes, take this, that God cares for us, that God cares so much for us that he wanted us to know what he's like, so he sent Jesus that we would know him. You know, John says in the first chapter of John, he says these, these words, he says, No one has ever seen God at any time. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So in other words, just as Rob was pointing out, we have wonderful miracles of Jesus because they show forth who He is in His person. Would we truly comprehend and know the love that God has for us if it was not Him sending Himself in the form of Jesus clothed clothed in human flesh, dying a death on the cross. And yet, our danger today and our danger throughout our lives, even if we're Christians, and I'll talk mostly to Christians because that's the majority of all of us in the room, is that we would let these things become too familiar to us. The blood, the cross... Jesus, the gospel message, a sermon preached, the things that we see around us in nature, all the things that He has given to us that we would know Him and know what God is like. And I think the reason why that is a danger to us is because the disciples had God with them in the boat. And yet, Jesus had become so familiar to them that they needed to be rebuked by it. And you remember the words out of John 14. And meant to be words of comfort when Jesus was telling the disciples that he must go away. And he knew that they would be sad. And he even says in that account, I'm going to tell you these things ahead of time so that you would believe. And we get those famous words that Jesus spoke and said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that I would receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then He said this, And the way I go you know. And Philip says, no, I think it was Thomas. Was it Thomas? Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know the way You go. How can we know the way? And Jesus said those famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. You know, it's also interesting that Philip in that account says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been so long with you, that you do not know Me? How can you say, show us the Father? Isn't that amazing? And if they could become so familiar with Him, how much more in danger are we to becoming so familiar with the Word of God, with the Gospel message, with His instruction to us, that we don't see God in it? And so our biggest exhort today is that we see God in what he's given to us and we see God in the gospel and it is in his deliverance to us. But you know life this side of eternity is not free from trouble. And we as Christians often run into times of trouble and sometimes I think those are things that would shake us and wake us up. Cause us to depend on him and to remember who he is and to remember our need of dependence upon him. And then we would cry out and ask Him to help us. And that's really this miracle. He's going to shake them to their very core and that they thought they would die. And He's going to say, remember who I am. I'll tell you a little story, and some of you know that I've just recently come through a little bit of challenging time myself. About 26 days ago, I, I had to have cervical A spine surgery lingering from my wonderful, fun times in football, traumatic injury that was really becoming quite serious, and I needed to have my C5 to C6 disc completely replaced. And in that event and leading up to it that I couldn't wait for, because I had lived with this issue for about three years, and this is the way God was going to provide some deliverance from me to a really a debilitating injury for me that was quite serious. And the way they do that surgery is they cut open the front of your neck and they, they put a breathing tube down your, down your throat and they move aside your major artery and your windpipe and they go through the front and they go in and they completely clean out what the bad is and they put a titanium plate above and below and a new disc in the middle. And in get, leading up to that time, as you, if, if you go through a major surgery or major operation to prepare you for it and to make sure that you're set, you'll go through a bunch of things and one of the things that happened to me was an interview that I had to happen with the surgeon, with the anesthesiologist, and one of the questions it was asked was, do you have a living will? Well, those words were just enough to trigger in my mind how serious this was. Now, God is always in control, right? And in the days leading up to that event, I became somewhat concerned, though. Not, not for my own physical well-being, or if the worst case happened, I know my... my my security is sure. That's not the issue. But I start to think of things through the thoughts of my wife and my children, right? And I became concerned. I hadn't been sleeping well for a couple of years before that, but I especially wasn't sleeping well those two nights before that surgery. And the night before the surgery, or should I say the early morning, um, we were supposed to be there at the hospital at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I, I couldn't sleep, and finally I got up, and it was about 1 o'clock in the, in the morning, and I, I walked out of the door of the house, and... You know, the expanse of the sky and the stars were just amazing, right? Sometimes God will give you His grace at the moment of need, and He's going to give you enough to see you through. Sometimes you wonder, how do people get through struggles or trials or or issues? Well, it hasn't been given to us to go through. But you can be sure for His children, if we have to go through hard times, He is going to give us His grace at that moment. And at that moment, and it's funny, the things that He brings to your mind, right? You know, brother can quote Scripture and poems and songs, and many of you can as well. But there was a song that popped into my mind. I, I don't even know how many times I'd heard the song before, but the words were there. I walked out of the door of the house and there the beautiful sky. The words popped into my head. All my hope is in Jesus. Thank God my yesterday has gone. All my sins are forgiven. I have been washed in His blood. A little while later, He actually brought me to a verse that was extremely helpful to me out of Isaiah 50, verse 2. This says, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or am I without power to deliver? What wonderful comfort that was for me. And so here we come to this miracle, right? Matthew chapter eight. And we're told these words, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. You ever wonder when you're going through trouble or a challenge, where is God at that moment? It's almost as if He might be asleep or does He care? But He was asleep. And they went and found Him and woke Him saying, Save us, Lord! We are perishing! Now don't miss that. They went and woke Him saying, or in other words, they woke Him with their cries of help. These are fishermen. They've been on, in, in some of these waters before. But this was so dangerous that they knew and they thought they were going to perish. And then we're told that He rose and He rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey Him? What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey Him? So in closing, I have just three very quick applications for us. The first and foremost is, are you in the boat? I find in that miracle a great practical application between the boat, the waves, the trouble, and the calm. God has provided a way, the truth, and the life through Jesus Christ, and our faith and trust in Him is the boat. We're told in Noah's day that when God would have to send judgment upon that wicked place, that He gave deliverance and He placed His chosen ones in that boat at a time when they didn't even know rain. And people mocked and they laughed. And when it was too late, they desired greatly to get into the boat Are you in the boat? Second, in the wind and the waves, we're all going to have trouble. We ought not faint from those things because they're to strengthen our faith. They're to strengthen our trust in Him. Boy, why do you exercise? You physically exercise because if it was not pushing yourself to to some limits, you wouldn't get stronger. You show me somebody who hasn't gone through tests and trials, and I'll show you someone who is rather weak. He's going to use some things to grow us, to grow our dependence on Him. We're all going to have winds and waves. But last but not least, He can be there in the pain. I don't know, maybe you're struggling today in some kind of pain. When I think of the kinds of trouble that we can go through, one might be struggle spiritually. Maybe you're right where you need to be because it's a conviction of sin and your need for the Gospel. Maybe it's a challenge mentally through anxiety or fear. Maybe it's physical. The thought of death or illness or some physical need. He is able to provide the calm in your storm and mind no matter what we're going through. No matter what we're going through. Sometimes we have to try to bail the water by ourselves for a bit before He reminds us that we ought to depend on Him, but He is able to give us calm. In preparing for this, I came across a poem. I love it. I, I had not heard it before. and The poem goes like this. Pain knocked upon my door and said she had come to stay. Though I welcomed her not in, but bade her go away, she entered in. And like my own shade, she followed me From her stabbing, stinging word, not a moment was I free. And then one day, another knock came gently on the door. I said, no pain is here. There isn't room for more. And he said, it is I, be not afraid. And from the day he entered in, what a difference he has made. Whatever our struggle today, what a difference. He can make. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank You for showing us Yourself through Your Word, through Your Gospel message, through the miracles. You said that we ought to believe that You and the Father are one. Believe for Your Word's sake, if not believe for the miracles that You did. May we not be so familiar, Lord, that we miss the awe in seeing You in everything around us and in Your Scripture and Your Word and Your miracles. And we thank You for loving us so much that You've shown Yourself to us. In Jesus' name, Amen.